0: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Buckle up. Trade tweets and rate cuts making it a pretty choppy ride for investors. Lift off the ride-hailing app shares soaring pre-market after an earnings beat. And eat less meat. one wonky takeaway from an alarming new report on climate change. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. once again to First Move, where we're gauging the first move for U.S. stocks this morning on what's going on with China's currency and where current bond yields sit. And I'm not joking either. These feel like the key drivers right now. If you take a look at what we're seeing, futures are higher after what was one heck of a roller coaster session. Let's call it that yesterday. Tech right now is outperforming. What we saw yesterday at the end of the session was stocks unchanged. They clawed back losses of uh, 1% or more after a dramatic turnaround midway through the session. What happened? The reason? Bond yields, I think. We had the US 10-year yield rising from multi-year lows, and that provided some to support to stock markets. The US 10-year yield is the current fear gauge, I think, for markets. What do I mean? Well, the bond markets around the world are a warning us, I think, of a significant slowdown. This is the point where I argue... Are we being too pessimistic? Is there too much of a slowdown here baked into the bond market cake? We'll keep asking the question. Right now, European stocks are higher, adding to gains yesterday, but similar story there. Investors, I feel, are watching the bond market and the signals being sent there. Lower bond prices, higher yields means higher equities over in asia chinese stocks also rising for the first time this week helped along by a stable to slightly stronger chinese yuan versus the u.s dollar and better than expected trade numbers for the month of july chinese exports rising over three percent year on year and we got another rate cut overnight too this time from the philippines as its export driven economy slows to the weakest level in four years Bottom line, it's still all about trade. Let's get to the drivers because Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, you and I were talking about this yesterday during the volatility. You really get the sense that stock market investors right now are watching what's going on in the bond markets and eyeing those safe havens very
1: closely. That's right, Julia. Calm has returned to global financial markets for the moment, at least. And I think you're right. I think that stock investors are taking their cues from the bond market. Just 24 hours ago, it was that really dramatic stampede into treasuries that seemed to freak everyone out and cause the stock market to drop. Now, the fact that the 10-year treasury yield has climbed back above 1.7% after yesterday collapsing below 1.6% briefly, I think has added to some of this stability. And the other factor, as you mentioned is what was going on in China's currency. Um, You know, it seems like just like four years ago, really, all eyes are on China's currency. I think that um, investors can live with a gradual weakening of the yuan. Um, In some ways, that only makes sense given the trade war and the economic pressure there. But any sign of a sudden devaluation um, really spooks investors just like it did four years ago. And so that's another source of stability is the fact that overnight China did fix the yuan on um, a little bit stronger than expected. They also released some better than expected economic numbers um, exports unexpectedly rose in July imports fell by less than fear nothing is really uh, all that great there but uh, again adding to this sort of sense of stability um, and you mentioned that there was another central bank rate cut the fourth that we've seen um, this time from the philippines and so that is um, also adding to a little bit of the more bullish uh, sentiment this morning julia
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it markets are sending certain signals. Central banks are saying, look, we're going to cut now preemptively, perhaps, to support their economies. The question is, where does this end? Another big indicator, I think, was what's going on in the oil markets. Falling into a bear market oil yesterday. We've bounced a bit in the session today, but there's chatter that perhaps the Saudis are having conversations about doing something here to support prices. There are global implications if we're talking about materially slower growth
1: going forward. Oil has just gotten clobbered here. Uh, Brent finished in a uh, bear market. Uh, U.S. oil prices have fallen even deeper into a bear market that they uh, first joined in uh, in June. Um, and all of this is about uh, these worries that the trade war on top of an economic slowdown is going to deepen this demand problem that oil has. Um, but oil prices are getting bid higher. As you can see, WTI up um, almost three percent this morning. And uh, that is, again, on hope of a rescue from Saudi Arabia, which is kind of like the central bank of the energy world. A Saudi official told Bloomberg um, that they're not going to stand for uh, an outright collapse in prices and that they are talking to OPEC officials about some sort of an unspecified response. Um, One thing they could do would be to cut oil production. But listen, they've already done that uh, pretty significantly. I think that they'd be loath to um, cut production even further and cede more ground to U.S. shale Oil producers. But they also can't have prices drop too far either because um, they've got to balance their budget. At the end of the day, Julia, I do think a lot of this is going to be decided by the trade war. Because if the trade war um, deepens, that's going to hurt demand uh, for all risk assets. Um, On the other hand, if we get some sort of a relief here, then we could see oil prices rise.
0: Absolutely. The buck stops here, quite frankly, with uh, Twitter, perhaps, and uh, what we hear as far as the trade talks are concerned. But the good news, of course, overnight is that both sides are still saying that the trade talks in September are going to go ahead, so we'll continue to watch for that. Plenty more headlines, I think, in the meantime. Matt Egan, thank you for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Lyft shares up. Some 8% pre-market right now. The ride-hailing company boosting its 2019 outlook. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, lower losses than expected, boosting their guidance here.
2: Is the price war with Uber over, or am I getting a little bit ahead of myself here? Well, it's certainly getting better, Julia. This is about two things. This is about Lyft's own execution, their ability to grow revenue and and bring down costs in a lot of areas. And it's about the industry trend overall. This is something that we've been watching since both of these companies went public earlier this year, uh, is the competitive landscape here. They've both been having to uh, heavily discount rides, essentially subsidize every dollar that they earn to, to win market share. Now, that does seem to be easing the CFO on the call today, saying we're focused on trying to win on brand preference and experience, not Coupon, so that is something that Wall Street very much welcoming. Uh, but of course, they you know they had expected uh, 28 2019 this year to be their peak. Last year, they now say that that might actually be behind them. They expect to lose less money this year than they did last year. That again, a, a big plus for the street and the the broader industry picture here. Julia is why we see both Lyft and in fact Uber up pre market. Uber reports earnings uh, after the bell. I think the the street will very much be looking for comments there again about about how this price pressure, this discount war uh, is easing in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The
0: question is, can both of them raise prices and, and still get away with making more money? Or is it a gain for one is damage to the other one here? Obviously, the difference between the
2: two of them is Uber's got a far more global business right now, perhaps. Yeah, Uber, of course, International Lyft, operates just in the U.S. Uber's costs as well are uh, likely to be higher because they're in, in, in R&D-heavy areas like uh, restaurants with Uber Eats and, and, and various other kind of moonshot ideas. Lyft, uh, it was interesting, they did say that they were able to significantly bring down sales and marketing expenses. They were at 35% of revenue last year, uh, this year down to, to about 19% uh, in this quarter. They say uh, that that's partly due to a drop in incentives, those coupons, as they call them, uh, for riders and also just broader uh, execution. They do seem to be doing better. And so we see a lot of analysts quite bullish uh, on this uh, this morning. Julia. But but don't be fooled. This is still a two horse race in the U.S. and we are looking at those growth numbers. Uh, Lyft's revenue growth of 72 percent this quarter, far outpacing Ubers in the last quarter of 20 percent. It'll be interesting interesting to see uh, how they how they do later in the day.
0: Yes, one quarter does not a trend make. Watch this space. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, next driver Samsung's big reveal, unveiling changes to the Galaxy Note 10, including a change that might perhaps raise some eyebrows over at Apple. Samantha Kelly has all the details on this. Now, Samantha, I remember when Apple removed the headphone jack from the iPhone 7. Samsung laughed at them, they poked fun at them, and now they're following suit. Interesting.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, you might even remember they had an entire ad campaign around this very thing where they showed people kind of fumbling for their dongles and uh, how upset they were about the news. Uh, but the decision, uh, Samsung said recently that they uh, basically wanted to make more room for the battery. But I think overall it kind of signals that people are using more Bluetooth, uh, wireless um, headphones and ear pods. Um, Apple, when they made the decision a few years ago. Ago, uh, people were upset. Um, and now the AirPods are one of their more beloved products. So I think it's all about change and people getting used to that. Uh, but it is certainly interesting because Samsung was one of the longest holdouts still having the headphone jack. So it'll be interesting if we'll see this on the Galaxy line, uh, the S line that is expected to come out in February. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I struggle to get excited about
0: particularly the premium smartphones. We know or we believe that the market saturated here what does get me excited though is 5g capable phones Mm. and samsung shortly gonna have two on the market the question is is it time to buy a 5g capable phone or do you have to wait for the the networks and the technology itself to catch up what do
3: we think here yeah, exactly. Like you mentioned, it's one of the more aggressive brands, especially here in the U.S. Um, with two models now. Um, I've tried it on a, a few different um, networks in different cities. And like you mentioned, it's pretty it's spotty. It's incredibly fast and it will open up so many different opportunities for the future. But right now it's inconsistent. So I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, do I want to buy a 5G phone now? Why don't I just wait until the networks are ready? Um, but a lot of people are it's taking them longer to upgrade now uh, phones are faster and um, they hold out a lot longer um, so if you are not um, going to upgrade for another three or four years um, and get a 5G phone then the networks will probably be ready by then and you'll be behind the curve with using the 5G so some people might be interested in kind of getting a 5G phone now and you know being a part of that working out the kinks process when it'll eventually uh, be much faster yeah, it's
0: fascinating, isn't it? And that also gives people time to catch up, or some of the other makers time to catch up. What was your sense of this um, this showcase that, that that Samsung provided here today? You know, I made the point about struggling to get excited about smartphones here. They were clearly playing to an audience here that wanted to hear the news. What was your what was your sense of
3: of what they provided here and how receptive the audience was and will be? Yeah. Sure, so smartphone sales in general have been kind of down. And Samsung's been one of those players to kind of try to drum up excitement. They've taken a lot of risks. We've seen that recently with the foldable phone, uh, which had some early problems. Um, so it, it's trying to innovate. Um, there wasn't anything completely out of the box. Uh, we saw one of the big things with the Note is the stylus. Uh, now has more sensors. It can kind of be a remote or like a wand. Some of the stuff can be a little gimmicky, um, But, you know, I think uh, to your point earlier about 5G, you know, we've had 4G now for 10 years. Uh, It's brought us Uber. It's brought us FaceTime. And now we've kind of reached that capacity. And I think 5G is going to launch us into an entirely different world with services we haven't even thought of yet. And that's when the innovation from these other smartphone uh, makers will really start to come into play. So we're sort of just waiting uh, for the technology to catch up with it. But I think for the most part, it was it was. You know, it's still one of the best, um, uh, smartest, sleekest smartphones out there. So it really depends what you're looking for. It does. Samantha Kelly,
0: great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other headlines that we're following around the world. Tensions between Pakistan and India are still running high after India's move to assume more direct control over its portion of Kashmir. India is calling on Pakistan to reconsider its decision to downgrade diplomatic ties. Japan has approved the first exports of sensitive materials to South Korea since a trade dispute escalated last month. Companies such as Samsung use them to make computer chips and other high-tech products, but Japan is warning it may still expand the list of materials subject to those export restrictions. Typhoon Lekima is barreling across the Pacific, carrying winds of over 200 kilometers an hour. It's expected to strengthen into a super typhoon. The island chain stretching from north of Taiwan to southern Japan are expected to be the hardest hit. The storm is forecast to hit southeastern China too, with winds of up to 160 kilometers per hour. A United Nations report warns that the way we eat, farm and manage land has to change if we are to better control global warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says consumption shifts and population growth have degraded the environment to an unprecedented degree. Nick Patton-Walsh joins me now. Nick, I'll scan through the headlines and the the bottom line for me was we simply have to eat less meat. But walk us through some of the conclusions because they were pretty alarming.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's one of them. The reason why everyone talks about meat, specifically red meat, is because that's kind of the biggest culprit. You have to grow so many crops in order to feed the cows. And also remember, too, the pigs and chickens that essentially create that essential part of human diet. And they say that agriculture itself, including land use, deforestation, is responsible for about 23% of the greenhouse gases created between 2006 and 2017. Food production, because remember, you've got to move...
0: lost you there for a second Um, we're just going to bring you back in here carry on please
4: Yeah, absolutely, don't worry. It's only central London to central New York. What could possibly go wrong? So speaking of the kind of the looming collapse of the daily life as we see it, the the third of greenhouse gases created by food production. Well, the good news is that we can potentially modify our diets and maybe reclaim a lot of that. Uh, the bad news is that there are a lot of signs uh, exposed in this report. And remember, this isn't just some activist group out of nowhere telling you you've got to, you know, behave with the hippie lifestyle. This is the consensus of United Nations experts experts, all the countries in the world choosing language they can all agree on. It's the truth. And the truth is basically that half a billion people now live in areas that are affected by desertification. That is essentially soil eroding, so it can't grow crops anymore. And it shows how the word cascade worryingly appears on a number of occasions, how the effects that we're seeing and, you know, people debate whether or not we're seeing record spells of heat and forest fires, etc. And they may have somehow be interlinked and rolling with each other to make things worse faster than we thought. There Report says that we're seeing these moves faster than necessarily we thought we might be. Now, as I say, it suggests we can change our lifestyles, our diets, we can change how we lose land, uh, use land and improve that. But it does show there's been a huge impact on the planet already. 70% of the land not covered in ice is currently used by humans. That's a startling number. And while the first IPCC report told us we had to shape up or and stop warming above 1.5 degrees centigrade, this says you've got to rethink what. You're doing right now, if not certainly tomorrow. Julia? I
0: couldn't agree more. It's real and we need to talk about it more. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but still to come. Chinese shoppers going overboard for Adidas, but if there's a currency war, what then? CEO speaks to me about the months ahead and the colossal challenge of 5G. Find out how Cisco is rewiring its workforce to face the future. That's all coming up. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this Thursday and we are looking at a positive start for U.S. stocks. Who knows though where the session ends given the volatility that we've seen over the past couple of days in particular. Stocks plunging early in the session yesterday ending up relatively unchanged tracking what we were seeing the movements in the bond market. We've got the 10-year yield right now sitting at 1.76 percent. We clearly need clarity on trade but for now it does feel like a to and fro between stocks and bonds. Joining us now, Christina Hooper, a global market strategist at Invesco. Always great to have you on the show. I've been making the point that it does feel like stock investors are watching the bond markets right now. And sort of the message that lower yields is sending about
5: concerns about the outlook. Would you agree? Absolutely. But I think, interestingly, what stock investors are doing is actually taking some comfort from central bank actions. Because we know from that playbook that that's usually a positive for risk assets. And so even though yields have moved lower, stocks have actually held up fairly well in the last day. Particularly
0: if it's insurance rate cuts as well, rather than real concerns about imminent recession risk, perhaps, and that seems to be what we're seeing globally now. I mean, plenty of the Asian central banks, the Philippines, India, New Zealand, another example, rate cuts galore this week. Yes,
5: but those are insurance cuts, certainly some fears about a slowdown, but then of course we got very good China data today about their exports, and that is giving markets a reason to heave a sigh of relief
0: the other big risk that we were looking at earlier this week and what I think made people very nervous was the sharp move lower that we saw admittedly only one and a half percent but still for the Chinese currency how closely are you watching that here just to set
5: the tone oh I'm watching it very closely I think what China is doing is flexing its muscle a little (laughs) bit and reminding us that it has so many tools in its arsenal um, that it is not going to be um, very eager to use but it certainly can so it's it's pulled back it's being very judicious I would say China is um, but we certainly know that uh, the Yuan could move significantly lower
0: you're someone who stands out to me as having said all the way along look a trade deal here is not going to be simple and actually stock investors global investors need to perhaps not be too optimistic here and just bake into the cake the idea that a trade deal is going to happen I guess you're reiterating that message and I'm getting it right
5: oh I see I stand by that. I said the scariest tweet of 2018, the scariest words ever spoken uh, in the past few years is that tariff wars are good and easy to win. They're not, and they could really send the world into a recession about the
0: U.S. bond market in particular? Because I do feel like a lot of people are watching the 10-year yield very closely. And you point out that this is kind of the fear gauge right now. What do you
5: mean by that? Well, when we see the yield go down, it's because investors are piling into Treasuries. Yes. And that is a safe haven asset class. Interestingly, we see, we see them going into other safe haven asset classes like gold. But in particular, Treasuries are very symbolic. Because they're viewed as giving us a sense about global growth expectations. And so we can only assume that investors are expecting a slowdown. The question is, how big a slowdown? You know, what's fascinated me over the past couple of days
0: in particular is how much focus we're seeing on cryptocurrencies, on so-called safe haven assets. And people, those in the industry saying, look, it makes no sense with central banks cutting rates, with broader concerns out there, not to have at least 1% of your portfolio in an alternative asset like cryptocurrencies. What do you make? of that?
5: Well, I certainly think there are good reasons to be in alternative asset classes. That's part of having a diversified portfolio. But there are a lot of alternative asset classes without going to Bitcoin. In fact, For many, gold holds a lot of the same characteristics that people are looking for in Bitcoin. It is not controlled by a government. Um, It's also historically been an inflation hedge for those who are worried that one day we could see inflation rear its ugly head. Um, But it is also secure in that you can own physical gold. Uh, The problem is that Bitcoin, the assumption was that people could own it physically, uh, essentially, because it would be in the wallet of their computer. But most people aren't technologically sophisticated enough to own Bitcoin that way, so they own it on exchanges that can easily be hacked, as we saw with Mt. Gox. So you're saying that even Mm -hmm. though perhaps Bitcoin itself might be an
0: interesting asset, the way that investors have to go about Acquiring it actually is enough of a deterrent for you, as far as investors are concerned, right now.
5: Exactly. I expect we will see some kind of cryptocurrency that is appropriate for investing, like a Fed coin. But we're a while away from getting (laughs) there.
0: The Federal Reserve coin coming to uh, to tackle Bitcoin. Underlying message here to investors: Don't panic.
5: Absolutely. Do not panic. Be aware that there are risks. That the trade situation is not easily ameliorated, and we're likely to see this continue, and we're likely to see flare-ups but that could represent buying opportunities and especially for long-term investors it's important to stay diversified but stay in the market is this a buying opportunity right now or too early to say well there are buying opportunities that present themselves intraday um, as we see with these wild swings so it's paying attention to those securities one wants to add to their portfolio at deciding on attractive entry points and waiting for it to happen makes sense Christina you always great to have you on the show Thanks. thank you so much all right we're
0: counting down to the market open stay with us we're back in three with that you're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move, Thursday's opening bell. There the New York Stock Exchange and it is a solidly higher open here for U.S. markets in early trading after yesterday's volatile session. A huge dramatic turnaround, I think, for uh for the session yesterday, very closely tracking what we saw in bond yields in the United States. As yields rose, so did stocks. Also keeping an eye on what's going on in the oil market, a gauge of the concern about the global economic outlook. We did fall into bear market territory, as we've already discussed on the show today. But moving higher in the session today, Saudi Arabia reportedly discussing fresh ways to support prices here with fellow OPEC members. What about currency land, too? as I keep reiterating, we continue to watch the actions of the Chinese central bank and what they do with their currency. The yuan is slightly stronger against the US dollar today. Remember, the key here, China moving to weaken its currency below that psychologically important 7 level to the dollar this week, as Christina Hooper just said to us. Perhaps a warning shot across the bow to the United States. Well, they took it, labeling China a currency manipulator this week too. Kevin Rudd is the former Australian Prime Minister and now President of the Asia Society. His view was labelling China a currency manipulator will only harden China's stance in the trade talks with the United States. I spoke with Rudd about what he sees as the best way forward here and how on earth to get a trade deal done. Listening.
6: Well, number one would be just for the President to shut up for a while. Uh, that would be very handy. Um, president Trump, I mean. And I've been, you know, basically supportive of his his efforts so far to bring pressure to bear on the Chinese. Uh, But these uh, statements of recent times simply make the degree of political difficulty uh, too high, in my view, and unnecessarily so. Two, on the substance of the actual negotiation, uh, where the uh, Chinese uh, need to... uh, Move and to concede further is against uh, President Trump's expectation that there will be a series of purchasing agreements by China of American goods in order to narrow the bilateral trade deficit. That's critical for Trump's political base. But three, where the Americans need to yield is on this question, namely their position that they can retain tariffs post a deal or within the deal and the agreement uh, maintain a view that, uh, or a provision that they can reimpose punitive tariffs in the future, if you, if the Americans unilaterally judge that the Chinese have violated the deal in the future. So the architecture of the deal, I think, is broadly there; it can be done. But what the president seems to be permanently doing is adding to the degree of political difficulty unnecessarily to bring this thing to a close.
0: The president of the Asia Society there, Kevin, wrote on particularly punchy form, as you heard the... All right, let me bring you up to speed now with the global movers that we're watching in the session today. Caterpillar, despite Goldman Sachs downgrading the stock from buy to neutral, a touch higher here. The company, of course, being hurt by the trade tensions as you were listening to there when Kevin Rudd was speaking. Lyft, as we've discussed already on the show, still loss making, but their full year revenues now expected to hit three and a half billion dollars. That's 200 million more than previously forecast. We've also Got competitor Uber reporting after the close, too. So that's something to watch right now, up some eight percent. Kraft Heinz also in focus. The uh, half one profits for the company halving, they were hit by over uh, one billion dollars worth of charges and write-downs down some 13 percent right now. The challenge continues for Kraft Heinz, of course, there. Next story. U.S. retailing billionaire Leslie Wexner has accused the disgraced money manager Jeffrey Epstein of misappropriating tens of millions of dollars from both him and his family. Wexner, who founded L Brands, the company behind Victoria's Secret, made the claim in a letter to members of his charitable foundation. Paula Monica joins us now on this story. So this is Les Wexner saying, look, 46 billion, million, million, sorry, million, for that's that's million, yeah dollars were misappropriated and that was only discovered in 2007 when of course the claims against Jeffrey Epstein were made in Florida. Talk us through the details here because the timing I think is very interesting.
7: Yeah, this obviously, uh, you know, happened, uh, you know, a while back. You know, it was discovered, uh, you know, according to 2008, uh, you know, tax statements and uh, Wexner saying in a letter uh, to uh, you know people that uh, has been obtained by CNN that this is possibly just a small portion of the money that was allegedly misappropriated by Jeffrey Epstein so it looks as if Wexner by no means has been able to recover all of the money that possibly was uh, you know taken away from him uh, by Jeffrey Epstein
0: This is a very uncomfortable relationship and we're only understanding the details of, of this relationship right now it's uncomfortable for for Wexner. It's uncomfortable, I think, for L Brands as well at this stage. And we don't really know where it ends.
7: Yeah, exactly. I think what a lot of people, Julia, are grappling with is that was Wexner just, uh, you know, a client for Epstein, or was it something more? I mean, the fact that one of the uh, women who has uh, alleged abuse uh, by Epstein, that incident allegedly took place in an. You know, a a property that's owned by Leslie Wexner. So that is something that just adds to the confusion surrounding the relationship here, which, you know, some might argue was deeper than just a business relationship between a billionaire retail magnate and a money manager.
0: And this is the, the big confusion, I think. We can't really get a sense or understand where Jeffrey Epstein's money came from. So that's why the, the ties here to, to Les Wexner and Al and Brand's, therefore, continue to be prodded. Where did the money come from?
7: Exactly. When you look at uh, the uh, accounts uh, you know, run by uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know most people really are focusing on Wexner because it appears as if Leslie Wexner is the only major significant client that Epstein had. So that obviously is raising a lot of questions. And, you know, it's just more bad news, I think, for uh, Les Wexner and L Brands, which is a company that putting all of these awful issues aside is a company that is really struggling because it lost taste with what consumers want. That, you know, focus that L Brands and Victoria's Secret in particular have continued to have on, you know, sexy lingerie and the whole angels, uh, models on the runway strutting around. It it really is tone deaf in the Me Too environment that we're in right now.
0: Yeah, that story will continue to run. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, we've got the CEO of Adidas. We talk growth in China, currency wars, trade wars, and how to make shoes from plastics taken from the ocean. That's coming up. Stay with us. Competitors is the
6: boss market. Plus, the new way to combine
7: work and play. So we just want to help more people have this life changing global experience.
1: Ah, <laughs> perfecto. On the next
6: CNN, Business Traveler.
0: First move, tech giant Cisco says it will spend $5 billion on 5G, getting ready for 5G over the next three years. That's in addition to its investment in artificial intelligence, both of which will have significant impacts on their workforce. Joining us to discuss is Cisco's Executive Vice President and Chief People Officer, Fran Katsudas. Fantastic to have you with us, Fran. Thank you. a lot of time on this show, too, talking about the impact that 5G technology, in particular, will have and artificial intelligence will have on consumers. We don't have to talk about what it means for employees within a workforce. You're spending a lot of money getting ready. Talk to me about what you're doing. Yeah, so first
8: of all, the $5 billion absolutely shows our commitment. As it relates to our people, I think what they experience is that they know that this means that everything is changing. And in some cases, I think we know exactly where it's going. In other cases, we're gonna learn a lot. For our employees, they realize that their skills and their capabilities are going to have to evolve as technology changes.
0: I mean, you've spent three point three billion dollars already training the workforce globally just to be more digitally savvy, to get them prepared. What does it mean in practice? And does it matter without wanting to be ageist? Does it matter sort of the age group of the people that you're tackling? Because you know, for millennials in particular coming into the workforce, a lot of the things that they use on a day to day basis, mobile phones, computers, is natural to them. As you get progressively older for the workforce change is hard, retraining is hard, technology is kind of hard. Well it's funny because you're getting to the
8: key and I think this applies to every demographic which is we're gonna have to change our mindset and we're gonna have to realize that our roles are going to be changing on a regular cadence. I think learning now will be something that we just do on an ongoing basis. It won't be an option for us to remain relevant. So across the demographics I see um, similar responses and what What that means is that we have to prepare our people ahead of time, and so we're using technology now to help them understand the skills they have, which is really important. And then we're working with them to understand what roles they want in the future and bridging the gap. And so that's something that we're doing today to really help our people make sense of the change.
0: I mean, you're in the cusp of a period of time where technology is moving really quickly where we have to prepare for something that's going to change things dramatically like 5G technology. the future, will it be almost too late by the time you get into the workforce? I guess I'm asking whether governments need to step up here and the education needs to start way
8: earlier absolutely yes so I think there's a big role for government but I also think there's a big role for tech some of the insights that we see right now help us to understand that tech has impacted industries in very different ways and for us to ensure that we don't see a broader divide we're gonna have to do more to bring tech to some of those industries that really need to see the revolution what's fascinating now is we also see some of these changes bringing out more of the humanity we're using tech at this moment to really help from a mental health. Health perspective. We're using our technology to bridge teams and, and people around the globe to counselors and people that can support them and so I I think our people are seeing baby steps around how technology will be incredibly positive as well.
0: Yeah, I was looking at an OECD report and they said that they were looking at automation and artificial intelligence yes. and they said 14% of jobs across 32 countries are highly vulnerable yes. in light of the changes that are coming, um, 32% more will see significant change. Is it good? to cost jobs? Because for some people, the degree of change, the degree of learning, the skills gap that this will create is simply beyond them. Is that a fact that we have to accept? It is, and we're seeing it already.
8: And so I think it's something that we have to acknowledge. It's interesting, though, with every study that you review that shows the jobs that are going away, there's a lot of great insights around the jobs that are emerging. And again, some of them we don't know. There's a crazy stat right now that 60% of the jobs that will be available um, to our kids don't exist today I mean that's terrifying And so that's pretty amazing and so again what that means is that we have to have tremendous focus we have to be deliberate I would say from a US perspective I would love to see us have a state-by-state
0: plan around how we look at these industries I think the key thing is you've got to be flexible you've got to be open to your point that you're simply gonna have to acquire skills as you go along and actually a rigid educational system is not the answer because you kind of need to be flexible
8: yes we're seeing universities start to really Rethink and engage with us in a different way. Yeah. We also have some pilots right now where high school students are coming straight into Cisco, and we're bringing the college education to them. Right. My sense is in this next world, there's going to be many different paths, not one. Skip uni. that might be? <laughs> <the answer. laughs> yeah. I wouldn't
0: say that. <laughs> no, 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 a, bit far, a bit far, sorry. <laughs> Fantastic to have you on. Thank, Thank you very so much, much. Frank Frankett, for us there from Cisco. All right, you're watching First Move. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Back to First Move. Adidas citing supply chain issues for a slightly softer than forecast sales report in their latest earnings. So they did reaffirm guidance. The news pushing shares in the German sportswear company down, as you can see, just over 1.3%. We had seen a pickup in shares on hopes they might actually lift that forecast. I have to point out those shares up more than 50% year to date. And Adidas said they expect sales to accelerate in the second half. Half of this year, I managed to catch up with the CEO, Kasper Rolstead, earlier and I began by asking him about the risks right now of the escalating trade war, whether we're talking trade tariffs or the risk of a currency devaluation coming over in
9: China. Listen in. If we look upon over our world business, we do 25% of our revenue in China and we have 20% of our capacity in China. Right. So tariffs will have very little impact for us. Maybe in one or two quarters, is actually not one of the areas that we're concerned about. What is much more concerning is if you have a real currency war between the U.S. currency and the Chinese currency. Because, as I said, we do 25% of our business in local currency in China. And I think that's going to be a no-win game. And that will be the same for all global companies with very large presence in China and the same for the U.S. So we hope that some kind of sense will come in and uh, a resolution between U.S. and China can be uh, reached. Because that's one of the areas that we simply can't mitigate. We can mitigate Anything that's around terrorists, we cannot mitigate currency fluctuation. And that's why we continue to say we believe that the world will stay the way it is and confirming our guidance. But of course, if the world completely changed when it comes to currency, it will change for everybody, not just for Adidas.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, you were one of those that signed the letter to the White House saying, please don't do this because it will be chaotic for everybody and it will impact the consumer. I appreciate it it differs by company, but can you give us any sense of how much additional cost in terms of tariffs you could absorb versus simply saying, look, we can't absorb this and we have to pass this on to the consumer? Because that's the ultimate cost here is that things cost more for the consumer.
9: So if you look for the American consumer, he or she will be impacted when he or she buys shoes. For the American Adidas consumer, they will not really be impacted because, as I said, most of the delivery we have of our shoes to the U.S. is coming from a non-Chinese country, you know, Vietnam or Indonesia. But it does have a significant impact. So I would estimate between 10 and 20 percent would be the price increase for shoes in the U.S. for those that are manufactured in China. As I said before, that won't have an impact for the Adidas consumer, but it's bad for the economy, it's bad for the U.S. consumer, and it's bad for the U.S. retail.
0: When took over as CEO, he put digital e-commerce sales front and center. Growth in the quarter of e-commerce sales hit 37 percent. They use Instagram. They've got connections with stars like Kanye West. I asked Casper, what's the most important tool for boosting e-commerce sales? Listen in. You
9: know, unfortunately, you can't say one is having really cool products, which <laughs> we hope we have either created by ourselves or with Pharrell or Kanye or now Beyonce but then having the right technology that allows consumers to interact with us. We do 90% of our marketing spend is now digital. We have a digital app. We have a loyalty club. We have our online site. We customize for our consumers. We give preferential drops, and that is now fueling the growth we've had. We had a similar growth rate last year. We expect the same this year. So if you look upon, without any comparison, the most important store in the world for Adidas is our online store, and that's where we're putting most of our resources. Last year and the year before, 80% of the new highs in our company was hired into the digital space so we are becoming more and more digital as a company that's where the future lies that's where the consumer is and as a consumer company we got to be where the consumer is
0: wow that was a stunning fact 90 percent of your marketing now is digital
9: and that, that has transferred over the last uh, set of years but if you look we have very young consumers, their primary engagement right. device is the mobile phone, the mobile device, and that's we go where the consumer is. So you hardly see any TV advertising. I don't think you've seen any of ours from the last three years. And the only country right now where we, do, we still do TV advertising is in China, despite the fact that China is more digital enabled than any other nation in the world.
0: Interesting fact about China there, too, and the marketing strategy. Now, Adidas says it's racing to make its products more sustainable, too. It's committed to only using recycled plastics by 2024. The key here is, though, it doesn't just have to be good for the environment. It can also make good business sense, too.
9: But it is great for business. Approximately three years ago, we got the idea to take plastic out of the oceans, recycle the plastic, and build shoes for us. So that was the starting platform. This year, we'll sell 11 million pairs of shoes made out of ocean plastic. But we've gone beyond that. So we have football jerseys. So when a Real Madrid or Manchester United launched their jersey, sometimes it's made out of ocean plastic. We have you know, outdoor, we have shorts. And so we've expanded more and more to the entire portfolio. And that business will be close to half a billion for us now. And what we just announced about a month ago was a fully recyclable shoe. In 2021, we'll come out with a product that in all of its components will be fully recyclable. And that resonates with the consumer. Sustainability is playing a huge influence on all our consumers, particularly the, uh, the young one. And having products where you have a sustainability value proposition makes a big difference in the market. And we see it as a business opportunity and at the same time also an obligation to help make a better environment.
0: The Adidas CEO there. All right, let's take a look at today's bordering brief. Ryanair's pilots in the United Kingdom will go on strike for five days this summer. The move comes as negotiations with the low-cost carrier on pay and working conditions broke down. UK pilots are scheduled to strike for two days in August and for three days in September. Shares in Germany's ThyssenKrupp are up some 4% despite the company issuing its fourth profit warning in a year. The stock hit a 16-year low earlier this week as the steelmaker struggles to restructure in the face of falling demand. From Russia with love, not so much for tech giant Apple. The Russian anti-monopoly watchdog FAS is investigating Apple for unfair competition practices. This follows a complaint from cybersecurity firm Kaspersky Lab saying Apple played favorites with smartphone app updates. FAS is investigating why non-Apple security apps didn't update and stop working. Now before we go, bringing back the 90s.
3: You morons, come and get me. You guys give up or you're thirsty for more? Disney
0: says he's thirsty for more. It revealed plans to reboot the classic Home Alone film now that it has most of uh, 20th century Fox assets under its wing. There's only one Kevin McAllister and that's Macaulay Culkin and he seems to be on board. He tweeted this picture of how he thinks Kevin would look while Home Alone today and wrote, Hey Disney, call me. Buzz your brother. Woof. Yeah, not so sure about that. (laughs) That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours.
7: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.